Through the years, God has uh, blessed my life through the men that I have served with and the women that I have served with over these past four decades. And though it sounds like a generalization, and I guess it kind of is, I have noticed that there are, uh, generally speaking, two sorts, two kinds, if you will, of servants that I served together with through these years. And um, I was thinking about this yesterday as I thought of this illustration, because I, I have these two gadgets at home, and I'll explain it. But both are necessary gadgets, and they, are, they, they serve their purpose. And so there have been those that I've served with through the years who have a kind of an uncanny ability to uh, kind of shore up the situation. They're aware of their surroundings and aware of what's going on, and they're able to say, this is what I see. And I would liken them to um, a thermometer. I have on hanging on the wall at home a thermometer, and that thermometer basically serves the purpose. Uh, it, it doesn't really change anything around it. It simply registers what is. It tells me what the temperature is. But then I have another gadget on a different wall. It serves a purpose as well, only it serves a purpose that I think is more important. Because it not only has in its ability a recognition of the temperature, but it has the capacity to actually change the temperature. And so that's my thermostat different than a thermometer. A thermometer is quite limited. It simply tells me this is how it is. But the thermostat says, well, if that's the way it is and you're uncomfortable with it or it's not as it should be, let's change it. And there are people in the body of Christ who have that special ability to not only sense and see what is, but then be able to have from the Lord a giftedness to say, let's do something different. Let's change it, therefore, or let's do this to meet the need. And so I am grateful for that. Now, today we're doing something, and it's probably dangerous. I shouldn't be trying it, but I'm trying to, partly because next week's Easter, and I would like to begin a new series after Easter. So I am making the bold attempt at finishing uh, the book of Philippians today. And so we're looking in chapter 4 of Philippians. But today we're talking about the subject of contentment. About contentment. The Apostle Paul was not merely a thermometer. He was that, and he had a very clear vision of what was. And in many of his letters to the churches, you can tell that he knows what's up with them and how to help them. But he also has the dual purpose of serving as a thermostat, where he says, I'm going to turn the temperature down or I'm going to turn the temperature up. I'm going to change the environment through my leadership. And the most powerful way Paul has done that, and we have recorded in the sacred scriptures, is through his example. And today we get to look at his example, an example of contentment. Another word for contentment might be the word satisfied. 
I love the passage in, at the end of Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 25. After Abraham had walked with God all those years and gone through all the ups and downs and trials and tests of his faith, and God continued in grace to work in Abraham's life, it came to the end of his days, and it simply says, And Abraham died at a ripe old age, satisfied with life. Content with life. Does that mean he had no hardships, no ups and downs and difficulties and times where he was confused and, and, and just felt pulled and pushed and, and stretched? Of course he did. But he lived a life of satisfaction, a life of contentment because he knew in whose hands his life was, in the hand of God, and he knew he could trust God right up to the last breath died at a, at a ripe old age, and whatever that ripe old age is, for me, whether it's young or old or when it is, I want to finish my course satisfied because I've trusted the Lord. How about you? So today we're looking at Abraham, or excuse me, not Abraham, we're looking at uh, Paul, and we're in uh, this uh, last chapter, chapter 4. And what I think we'll do is we'll read it first. It's a lengthy passage, so just follow with me. And then we'll break it down a little bit and look at it together. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. 
the brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As we open, the, open these verses, we're going to follow a fairly simple outline, but as I studied this passage, this seemed to surface to me more than anything else. And so I've entitled the message simply, Three Secrets, because Paul uses that term. I have learned the secret of contentment, and it's found, I believe, in this passage. So three secrets of godly contentment. Why do we call it godly contentment? Well, because godly contentment is a different kind. It's the kind that can suffer want, and it's the kind that can have plenty. It's the kind that can have the ups and downs without having the contentment waver because that contentment is not based upon those circumstances. First Timothy chapter 6 says this. It says, Contentment, when accompanied by godliness, is a means of great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. Therefore, if we have food and shelter and clothing, therewith we shall be content. Nowadays, when we kick on the television and are bombarded by info commercials and all kinds of advertisement, they have one goal in mind, and that is, Tony, you need this. And until you get this, you must be discontent. Because if I can't make you discontent, we'll have to go bankrupt. Our product will never, will never advance. We'll, we'll go out of business unless we can convince you that you need to be discontent until you have this. Isn't that right? Isn't the entire thing built upon that? Sure. Well, let's do this. Three secrets of contentment. And I, I, I'm taking this, and not just Paul, by Paul's own testimony example. And the reason that I, I feel free to do this, apply it directly to you, is because of the promise that he gives, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Because he said that, the whole of his testimony therefore applies to you and to me. And you'll see it as we go. So first of all, in your life and your journey, because that is what we're on, isn't it? We're on our way home, you guys. There's no lasting stock that we can take in this world. We're on our way home. And on that journey, there is these three secrets. They're like the undergirdings for contentment in your life and mine. The first one is, there's a providence that engulfs you. And I'm not exaggerating by using those kinds of terms. 
for the Christian, there's no such thing as an accident. There's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as good luck or bad luck. Right? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my thoughts from afar, right? When I rise up, there you are. When I sit down, there you are. Lord, my whole life is engulfed by you and your presence and your providence is all around me. I don't live this godless mentality that I'm just a victim of fate or circumstances. God says I've numbered the very hairs of your head, right? Our lives are in his hands. And so there's a providence that engulfs your life. And that's just simply verse 10. It's implied in what Paul's saying. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. The word revived is interesting. It's actually a horticulture word. It means it's used of a flower opening before the sun. Your concern for me and your desire to help me in my imprisonment and send some funds and some commodities that I might need for survival, you've done this and I'm rejoicing because you have. Ten years have passed since Paul was in Philippi. He's now in Rome and he's imprisoned and he's chained to a guard around the clock, a Roman guard. And there he is and he's still to face Caesar and he really doesn't know if his life will end. We learned that in chapter 1, didn't we? For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Which of these I should choose, I'm not sure. I'm torn between. Remember that passage? Paul doesn't know what's going to happen at this point when he stands before judgment of the Roman authorities and under Caesar. But here he is and he says, basically, Epaphroditus has come and he's brought this to me. And what's happening here is what Paul often does. He starts out by wanting to say thank you. But he can't just leave it at thank you because he wants to qualify what I mean by thank you. And so we have this whole rich teaching about contentment in life. And by the way, contentment is not just a virtue. It's a command. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Let your way of life be free from the love of money and be content with such things as ye have. For he himself has promised, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. It's a command that we be content under the providence of God. And so Paul here is recognizing God's providence. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. And then he kind of, it's beautiful, he says, he's so gracious, he says, oh, and I know you, it's not as though you just got, you just lacked opportunity. You've been always concerned. You notice how he says that? Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. I understand. The providence of God. God works in his world, in a sense, in, when he works directly in the world, he works in two, generally speaking, two ways. Sometimes God intervenes and does miracles. A miracle is him 
uh, sidestepping the very natural laws that he put in place, and he overthrows them for his purposes momentarily, and he does a miracle, and that's it. Supernatural. There's no natural explanation for it. Years ago, Kathy and I went to the hospital. She had a family that she grew up in Lewiston, Idaho with. And the family had one of their, uh, one of their members of the family was in the hospital in Spokane, and we were serving near Spokane at the time. And I said, Kath, I'm happy to go with you. We can go visit this person. But they weren't giving them very good chances, and they had a, they had a tumor the size of an, a cantaloupe. And uh, we went, and we visited with them, didn't we, Kath? And we spent time visiting with them, fellowshipping with them. I shared some scripture with them, and I just said, well, before we leave, is it okay if we pray? I didn't know. I had no psychological certainty that God was going to do what I was asking. I'm sorry, guys, I just can't rise up to the high levels of those TV evangelists that have omniscience and know exactly what they're going to do all the time. I just don't know anything about that level of spirituality. Does anybody sense the sarcasm in that? You mean that level of charisma? Yes, I didn't want to be misunderstood. But Kathy and I, we laid our hands on this person. I put my hands where the tumor was, and we prayed. And when we were done, they were very grateful we were there, and we left. The next day, we got a call. Kathy got a call from this person's mom, I believe it was. I can't. Um, the doctors came in to make preparations and do some more testing before the surgery no tumor. It was gone, and they had no medical explanation whatsoever. Okay? God did that. And I had no psychological certainty that he was going to. I knew he could. If it was his will, his perfect will, I knew he could, and he would if he wanted to. But we don't tell God what to do. We don't dictate to God how things ought to be. Oh, I know we all try. But he doesn't need that. But James did say, you have not because you ask not. That's a miracle. I think providence is so much bigger. The providence of God and his hand upon your life is so much bigger than any miracle. If we only had the faith and understanding. Because in providence, what God does is he doesn't just touch down on one point and fix it. God orchestrates hundreds of situations around you and people and timing. And he orchestrates all of that in a way that is for your good and for his glory. And providence is bigger than a miracle. And so while people chase about from tent meeting to tent meeting, racing and chasing, hounding miracles, 
they're living in the midst of this glorious providence of God and they don't even know it. The sovereign providence of God. And that's what Paul's celebrating. I rejoice. And I don't have any bitter spirit about the fact that I haven't hardly heard from you for 10 years. I knew you were concerned. You lacked opportunity. So gracious. Beautiful. And if you don't think that's so, and you need some biblical evidence, just go sit in the Old Testament. Sit down, would you, with Joseph. Sit down with Joseph and talk to him about his life. Talk to him about those loving brothers of his. Talk to him about what a, what, a, what a fair and just deal he got in Potiphar's house. Talk to him about his time spent in jail and the two that he helped and the one that completely forgot him and left him for another year or two. Talk to Joseph about the providence of God. Talk to Daniel, young lad, about the age of Kai probably, handcuffed and chained and drug off to a foreign land, Babylon. God of providence? And could he take a Daniel and slowly move in Daniel's life to the point that Daniel would one day stand shoulder to shoulder with the king of Babylon, with the emperor of Babylon, second in command of the entire country? God could do that. Did Daniel know that's what he was going to do? I think not, because there's a mystery about providence. We don't know all that God's up to. And so he says, become like little children and trust in me. I'm constantly at work on your behalf and in your life and your surroundings and your relationships and all of it. I'm involved so much more than any of us grasp. Sit down with Daniel. Sit down with Esther. She's an interesting one. Ask Esther, do you know anything about providence? Or Ruth. How about you, Ruth? You get married. You think your life's going to pan out fine. Your husband dies. Your father-in-law dies. Your brother-in-law dies. Death all around you. What you going to do, Ruth? she says to Naomi what your God will be my God your people will be my people the providence of God in Ruth's life and eventually there was a Boaz that came along huh go figure right beautiful stories of the hand of God beautiful Jonah he's a fun one you see the providence of God over Jonah's life? Sure. Sure. Well, that's as much as we can do on that one. Let's move on to point two. The second point is, not only is there a providence that engulfs and surrounds, it's under you, around you, all, uh, it has your entire life in his hands. But there's also a power that enables you within the power of Christ. Look at verse 11. In view of their helpfulness, their gifts, he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
and I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being content. Of being filled, of going hungry, abundance, suffering. I've learned the secret. And then verse 13 answers the question of verse 12. Well, Paul, what is the secret? Well, it's not only the providence of God that engulfs my life, but it's the power of God, the power of Christ that enables me. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The enabling power or grace of Christ in your life and mine. It's an extensive, an extensive power. All things. This verse literally says, all things I can do. Now, we can't leap tall buildings in a single bound. That's not the context, is it? Context matters. I can do all things within the will of God, within the plan of God, within the purpose of God, within God's calling. What he calls me to do, he will equip me to achieve. That's the idea. We don't want to take that verse and put it on a plaque on the wall and yeah, take it out of context. It's not right. But there is a context here, and we should thank God for it because we live here in this context. Extensive. It's, it's an exclusive power. Did you notice that? It's not available to the whole world. Or to everybody, it's exclusive. Why? Because it's a power that's through him who strengtheneth me. Not every person can say that he is in my life, granting me enabling grace and power to live this out. It's exclusive in that sense. A vital union with Christ, a walk with him, a daily fellowship with him, feeding on his word. That's the person that this verse is describing as Paul gives his own testimony. And strangely enough, it's, it's an explosive enablement, an explosive power because the word used is the word dunamis. Dunamis from which we get dynamite, dynamo, dynamic. That's the Greek term used here. Paul says, I can do all things through him who explodes in power in my life. Isn't that great? Wow. So there's a power that enables. Thirdly, there's a promise then that encourages you. Providence that engulfs your life, that's one of the secrets. There's a power that enables you, that grace of God. Where you remember that. Paul prayed three times in 2 Corinthians 12. Lord, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. And God said, uh, no. My grace... My, en my enabling grace and power is made perfect through your weakness, Paul. And so Paul says, well, great. Then I'll boast about my weaknesses, my frailty, my shortcomings. That's great because as I do that, then I can know something of the power of Christ in me. Thirdly, there's a promise that encourages us. So now he comes back to giving thanks. He's finishing up this letter. Remember, we're, we're try he's trying to end this letter. So verse 14, he says, 
he comes back to what he started to say in verse 10. He's thankful. So verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. You're the, you're the ones who stuck with me. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And then he says, not that I seek the gift itself. Why would he say that? Now, is he being ungrateful? Is this an ingrate speaking here? No, it's a man who knows godly contentment. I don't want what you have. I don't want what you have. And I don't think any preacher is worth his, is worth a plug nickel. I was going to say salt, but it's even less than that. Worth a plug nickel if he is motivated by what he can get from his people. Filthy lucre is what 1 Peter 5 calls that. That's the King James Version. Sordid gain. Using spirituality, preaching, teaching, ministering to people as a way to fleece them. What an evil. Paul says, no, I wasn't after what you have. Look there at verse um, um, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that increases to your account. And then he's very grateful. He says, but I want you to know how I'm doing. I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. And Paul's abundance is, you know, you think about that. He's still chained to a, a guard. Yeah, no, he's still waiting to, sit, to stand judgment before Caesar. I don't know what he means by, I have an abundance. It's probably less than what you have in your kitchen cupboards, I'm sure. But to Paul, it was an abundance. I'm amply supplied, he says, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And then he calls it a fragrant aroma, something God could smell. Your sacrificial giving, your generosity is an aroma to God, he says. An acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then here's the promise. And my God, he's speaking to the Philippians, and this promise carries over to us. My God shall supply. God is an adequate resource. Stop fretting. Stop worrying. Stop stewing about these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things, Jesus said, shall be added to you. Right? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And as far as we know, that's the last, this is the last words the Philippian believers probably ever heard of Paul. Not sure they ever heard more from him. It's really quite beautiful, isn't it? Paul's heartfelt gratitude for God's provision and also for their generosity. 
And then he rises in this overwhelming promise, and my God shall supply. Well, a letter ends with, a gre- with greetings and benedictions. And there in verse 21, we read, Paul closes Philippians with, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me, they greet you. And verse 22 is one of those subtle and yet wondrous verses. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, even in this predicament. And that's implied very subtly. I don't know why Paul did this. You know, with me, I'm so excited over one convert that I can't tell enough people about it, and then they usually fall away, because I don't know why that works. Anytime I've boasted about a convert to Christ, they fall away. I need to constantly watch out to give God the honor and glory for what he's done in someone's life and take no credit for myself. But look what Paul says very subtly. All the saints greet you, especially those (laughs) where? In Caesar's household. What's he saying? Yeah. These, these years here, imprisoned, I've been leading people to Christ. They're all over Caesar's household. Christians. That, if that doesn't strum the strings of your heart, nothing will. Isn't that beautiful? That's the predicament that he's in. Did it stop him from carrying out the will of God? Did it stop, put a halt to his ministry entirely? Did it put a muzzle on him and keep him from sharing the gospel? No. Even in this predicament, he still was used of the Lord to reach people for Christ in Caesar's household. So it's another one of those passages where, and I'm sorry that I think so literally, because as far as I'm concerned, when I'm in heaven and I'm finally home with the Lord and all the people of God that have been saved throughout the ages, I'm telling you, at some point, in the unfolding of eternity, I'm going to bump into one of those saints from Caesar's house. I'm going to say, let's have a heavenly cup of coffee, and I want you to tell me all about it. How in the world were you led to Christ? And what others did you share with within the household that caused it to keep multiplying? Don't you think like that? Don't you want to see some of those people? Because that's all we're given especially those of Caesar's house. So the letter ends with, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Hasn't this been a good journey through Philippians? I've enjoyed it. I've been enriched by it and challenged by it, and I hope you have too. All right.